0: There are no rules. There are ways that things have always been done, but there are, you know, parameters that you can break and change because at the end of the day, an acquisition is happening because someone sees an opportunity to buy something super special and you're probably special because you didn't do things the way everyone else did.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the 2%. For our season four finale, I'm joined by Michelle Cordero-Grant, the founder and CEO of Lively, a community and lingerie brand inspiring women to live passionately, purposefully, and confidently. After spending four years working in digital retail at Victoria's Secret, who at the time controlled 40% of the intimate apparel market, Michelle saw a major opportunity to put the needs of customers first and understand what women really wanted from their lingerie. She first launched lively in 2016 with an idea and a mailing list, but no physical product instead relying on a community ambassador program to guide the brand's identity and narrative. These unconventional routes paid off and lively ended up selling out of its inventory in two weeks and ultimately was acquired for $105 million by Walk Hall just three years after founding. Today's conversation is jam packed with advice. Every founder can learn from, so let's get started. Okay. Um, Welcome, Michelle. So excited to have you on here today. Let's start with where are we finding you?
0: Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Today, you're finding me in sunny Florida, trying something different this year in 2022, but always back in New York when I can.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Um, So, you know, would love to also maybe hear a little bit about your background. So, um, you know, professionally, I know you had a career in retail and fashion prior to, um, prior to deciding to start lively. So, um, do you want to share a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. You know, as the daughter of two Indian immigrant parents, I thought I would be a doctor, lawyer or investment banker. But, you know, I uh I switched it up and I moved to New York and my first role was at Federated Merchandising Group, which owns Macy's, Bloomingdale's, etc. Started in product development and fashion merchandising. I just fell in love. Like always loved brands. It was my way of, you know, connecting with people and um tried law school it wasn't for me, but really grew up in big uh department stores like VF Corporation, building brands like Nautica and Kipling, found my stride at Victoria's Secret, um, and then moved into startup world.
1: So I know by 2016, um, Victoria's Secret controlled approximately 40% of of the intimate apparel market. Um, From your lens, I'm I'm sure you had a unique perspective of, of seeing what works, what doesn't work, where there may be an opportunity. Um what's the story behind why you decided to launch Lively?
0: Yeah, you know Having had worked at Victoria's Secret, one of the most powerful brands in the world, forget you know just the sector of bras, they had you know 40% market share, but they also had double digit operating income. They were very profitable when I was there. And that like really stuck with me. And I thought about why. And it was really what Les Wexner did was consistency. He was very consistent in building that brand. But also the consistency almost went almost too far while I was there because the number one products were built in 1998 and 1999. It was the bombshell fragrance. And beauty it was the bombshell bra on the very sexy bra which had been around now for two decades so in my mind what I saw was they were just playing the same tape over and over again but society was shifting you know enter social media and more emphasis on human individuality and uniqueness yet there were no products catering to that and more so all of these brands were created by men and so while men thought they knew what type of bra women wanted they forgot some really logical details <laughs> like front adjusting straps and J hooks in case you want to go from a regular shirt to a racer back or just products that don't feel like an anaconda after you have a cup of soup. And so that's really where I saw the opportunity was an intersection of brand and really speaking to all women are, are different and that's awesome. And product where products should feel as comfortable in bras as they do in, in athleisure and active, for example.
1: So for those who aren't familiar, how would you describe Lively? How does the brand's mission um, point of view kind of separate it from both, you know, industry giants as well as some of the, um, you know, smaller startups?
0: Yeah, I would say um, first and foremost, we're built by community. And so the idea of Lively was not a brand built in New York City with millions of marketing dollars and using statistics and reports to say, this is what America wants. It's really about how do you create a community that is constantly evolving what the brand puts out and what the brand says. Number two is product. Leisure is a word that we made up. You know, we felt like lingerie. In your mind, you hear push-up, corset, lace, provocative. So we wanted to create something where women felt passion, purpose, confidence, individuality. And so we made up a word. We said, What does athleisure and lingerie come together and create? Leisure. And that just opened a conversation for women to say, Yeah, why do I hate bras? It's for us. We should love that. Yeah. Um, and I think, lastly and most importantly, is price equality. Lively has one price point across all bras. And that was very unique for us because. Not every bra costs the same, as we know, there's a lot of different components. And more so, you know, a bigger cup size costs more than a smaller cup size, and people were charging more for that, which just didn't feel right. So those were really the three main ingredients.
1: And um, and in terms of, you know, your, your experience, so obviously you're going from, you know, a large uh, company, you know, several experiences working, you know, within large organizations um to now launching your own brand um dealing with kind of multiple functions you know across that um would love to just hear you know what was that fundraising experience like did um, did, you know understand (laughs) your vision and why building something like this is important
0: yeah i mean there was some lucky situations and then uncomfortable ones i would say on the lucky front my first investor was my manufacturer and supplier still today, and he really saw this opportunity. He saw what was happening with Warby Parker and Harry's and Casper, et cetera, and he himself was saying, how do we disrupt this category and create a digitally native new conversation? So that was amazing to find you know, someone that was very open-minded and forward-thinking. When the business took off and I was out there fundraising, I would get a lot like, of oh, let me go get someone with breasts or like, oh, you know, there's so many of these startups out there in this category. There there was just a lot of pushback in that capacity. Fortunately, numbers don't lie. And because we had strong KPIs, we were able to really foster a good board. Um, I think what's different about Lively is our first three investors were our only three. And so even though we had multiple rounds of funding, three, uh, three, Rounds, um, they all prorated, so they all came back, and we never took additional funding uh, pre-acquisition.
1: Oh, that's great! Um, I know you've shared, you know, in other um, in other episodes that you have, it, it, when you founded Lively, you did everything backwards, um, which I thought was really interesting. What What do you mean by that? And you know, what are what are some examples?
0: Yeah, I mean, number one, I started a company without a name. <laughs> so it was brand X. Uh, you know, I, I raised capital and came up with a concept and said, I, won't, I can't name it until I can see it. And I needed to be further along in the journey. Um, you know, number two, we built a community without selling product. You know, we said, let's actually have focus groups and create a dialogue in, on Instagram. Um, we actually even got up to 130,000 emails a month before we even sold one product. Because we want it yeah. to be truly organic. Um, yeah. Number two, we didn't spend a dollar on paid marketing until we hit most states in sales across America. And then I think most importantly is one price. Like you just don't really do that when you grow up in retail because you, the math is here's what I pay the manufacturer, and then I'm going to multiply that by X to make a profit. And that's what the customer pays.
1: Yeah. In your early days, um, you know I know I know you relied pretty heavily on on insights you know whether it's focus group insights, community ambassadors that ultimately helped kind of guide the brand's concept and identity um, and and then also ultimately you know helped define what the product selection would be. What would you say were some of the most important takeaways from you know from these conversations?
0: Yeah, um, you know, I'll start with imagery. Number one, you know, we would have these scrappy focus groups, Airbnb and wine, and be like, hey, come join us. (laughs) And then we would just put like images on a coffee table and say, write down on a post-it what comes to mind. And you would see like immediately, you know, women write provocative and sexy, etc. And when they would write confident or empowered or this is awesome, the the person in the photograph, we'll use the word model for better lack of better words, was not looking at the camera, or you couldn't see her face. And yeah. so we we consistently found that from an imagery imagery perspective, they wanted a very different pose and not the model, so that they could imagine themselves in the image. Number two is the words. Like they didn't like the word panties or underwear. They liked the word undies because. Yeah, that's a comfortable word. That's a word you would say all day long. It doesn't feel masculine. It also doesn't feel, you know, um, in a way that you're kind of like, oh, I wouldn't say that to my daughter. And so it was just yeah. things like this. The biggest aha though was this uh, tagline that we came up with, which was inspired by Wild Hearts and Boss Brains. And at that time, it was really about unlocking that women uh, often feel like vulnerability is their Achilles' heel. You know, we cry, we're emotional, etc. But our position was like that's actually amazing, and you should channel that along with a business sense, and you could see something explode. That I think was the connective tissue that really brought people in.
1: And um, you know, I know you touched on this earlier. You know, your first investor, um, Yosi Nassar, I think. Yeah, Yossi. Um, Yosi was also your supplier. Um, so, just curious, you know, what was that relationship like, um, and how was it, you know, hopefully helpful over time?
0: Yeah. You know, being someone that grew up in corporate, you know, I really treated lively like a public company would. So, you know, I laugh now looking back, but I would have board meetings before I even had a board, you know, I would invite (laughs) people for a board meeting because I wanted to hold myself accountable. And I would have a weekly meeting with him where he didn't ask for the meeting, but I would come with an agenda and like walk him through where the business was. And I think that really built like a sense of trust between the two of us because he never really, asked me you know he was never like asking me or like kind of poking or pulling or prying or anything like that given like a very big investment and a huge risk you know creating he created a factory for us i think over time we just built a trust because i overcompensated on showing my accountability and what was happening and he almost just said i'm here to support actually what do you need and i think that laid the groundwork for even our relationship today
1: that's great, and so you know, so important, especially in the early days, to have that level of kind of trust and and support.
0: Totally, and even like the idea of community and spending all this money on events and things like that at the time, which showed no ROI or black and white numbers, the you know people would be like, "Why are you spending all this time doing this? That's not going to drive sales." But he believed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's incredibly important, and I think ultimately helps you know when you think about what you can attribute success back to, so often it's just having people who share the same, you know, kind of vision for, for the business. So that's, that's fantastic. So you, you just mentioned community. I'm curious, um, you know, how did your approach to community and the ambassador program basically evolve over time? Um, You know, how do you, how did you interact with them? How do you maintain this relationship? Um, Would love to hear about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is back in 2016, so Instagram stories hadn't even launched at that time. You know, Instagram was definitely in its stride, but still like a pretty decent open pasture. Um, But our take was influencers, quote unquote, and celebrities get all of the love at that time on Instagram. But I was like, what about all these women in local towns across middle America, whether they're in a cul-de-sac, a drop off, a church or a synagogue. Like there are people with big megaphones that aren't showing up on Instagram with thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. It's like, but let's find them. And I bet they're going to be super excited that a startup in New York wants them to support, um, and build a brand. And thankfully that thesis paid off because when we did reach out to women in Nashville and Denver and forget New York and California, cause that's where everyone that's digitally native goes, let's go for the middle we found that we were able to cultivate like very long lasting, meaningful relationships with people at the time that had like 500, a thousand followers. And now today have 20,000 followers and brands sending them product. So I think the best way to say it is we found friends and we created mm-hmm. friendships and those friendships just grew and both the brand and those individuals grew along together.
1: And what would be your advice to founders? Um, you know, obviously the, the kind of landscape as it relates to community building has shifted and evolved since then. Um, what, what type of advice do you have for founders looking to build a brand with community at the center of it today?
0: Yeah. So I would say go against the grain and create your own process. So we started with a 50 to hundred, you know, quote unquote ambassadors. And that was us figuring out how to do outrage, which was, you know, it started in, in DMs, we would move it over to email, we would try to do phone, we would try to do text. And we found like our footing on what worked for our relationship and who the best people were for the brand. And honestly, if you can just find 50 to 100 that work really well, and you start to figure out what are the trends and the patterns behind this 50 to 100, but you got to spend the time to do it and like hustle and like, really get out there and communicate and build a relationship, then you start to create efficiency and technology and process to build it. We went from 50 to 100 when we launched, 1,000 in a year and a half. And after a year and a half, we figured out, okay, this is how we're finding the best community. Now let's add process. And today we have 160,000. But if you don't spend the time figuring out what works and what your narrative is, you're not going to get that real authentic community.
1: And, you know, I think, I think the, the point that you mentioned, like authenticity, you know, today, I think a lot of brands kind of take that very um, kind of standard approach, which is, you know, we're going to put a brand on Instagram and try to drive, you know, engagement um, and, you know, try to buy, you know, followers. But I think, you know, what you're, what you're talking about is, is truly at the heart of understanding, you know, the pain point, developing the relationship, which I think is, is such, is such great advice. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, if you think about, and this is what we talk about a lot at livelies, how were brands built before social media? People used to get out there, and like you would have these like grassroots events, and you know, series road shows. Like people were out there connecting human to human. And at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's a human connection that sparks an endorphin, which makes another human tell another human about some brand or product that they bought that they loved. That's what you have to figure out.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so you know I've obviously Lively has grown, expanded um, beyond intimate categories like loungewear, booty, et cetera. How do you determine you know what direction or what new products that you want to develop? And you know, are there any categories that you're um, you're thinking about expanding to into the future?
0: Yeah, yeah. So luckily, you know we rely on our community. So swimwear was our first category expansion, and it really came from our customers wearing our printed bralettes and bodysuits by the pool and basically saying like, make this a bathing suit. Um, <laughs> and so we, we did like way for way earlier than we thought we were only less than a year old when we started to work on swim. Um, and then the same thing happened with active. They were wearing our leisure a bralettes to yoga classes and, um, you know, like soul cycle, like, Oh, okay. We can make active too. So we really looked to our community loungewear too but there is one important business strategy that we hold and there's a difference between what we call an acquisition category and a retention category Mm -hmm. because you only have so many marketing dollars and so much manpower on your marketing team right and so a certain category has to prove itself before it can go from retention to acquisition and so we basically say like when we launch swim we're only launching it to our current customers and if it performs in that group We'll move it over to acquisition. And so that's what we did. We sold out of Swim just to our current category, uh, current customers, excuse me. And then we were like, okay, you've earned the right to now spend on marketing dollars. So it takes time, right? And you just have to test and beta into what comes next. But we've done everything from scrunchies to visors to fanny packs, like sky's the limit. We only have basically one rule and that's high margin and easy to ship.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, so I know, you know, 2019 was obviously a big year for, for lively, um, you know, huge, huge congratulations on the acquisition by Wakul. um, only three years, you know, post launch, what was that sale process like for you?
0: Wow. First of all, we were not in position to sell. Like we were not even thinking that was on uh, the radar for that year or even that, that next two years, but. Uh, when the opportunity did come, the first thing we did was we just talked to them without numbers. And we said like, really do our cultures make sense? Because Lively needs to exist well beyond me and the team today, you know, it has it's mission-based and and we really believe in what it can do for women um, generations to come. Once we realized culturally that we were a fit, um, even though our brands and our teams are very, very different that we saw, you know, the idea of beauty and balance together, we said, okay, let's talk numbers. And frankly, I had no experience. I didn't even know what an LOI was, or you know, a stock purchase agreement. I knew no, nothing. And so I did what I always do, which is just figure it out. And you know, asked a million people for help, smart women like you. Like, what does this mean? What can I ask for? Um, and what I realized through that process is there are no rules. There are ways that things have always been done, but there are you know, parameters that you can break and change. Because at the end of the day, an acquisition is happening because someone sees an opportunity to buy something super special. And you were probably special because you didn't do things the way everyone else did. And so same thing with the sale process. You have to follow the process. But you should really cultivate, you know, a partnership that works for both in the end. I didn't have a banker. Um, and so the banker that represented Walk Hole and me, you know, we're very close. Uh, I would say that the tips that I have for people are one, find a great lawyer. <laughs> Make sure that you believe in your legal team um, and that they that you can really trust them. Number two, read everything and, and understand it. And don't be shy to say, I don't get it. Like, can you dumb that down for me or can you just explain it? But yeah, we went from uh, meeting in January to selling in July. Wow.
1: That is incredible. Um, and I'm curious, you know, as you think about the factors that you would attribute to the speed at which, you know, um, you were able to get the attention of, you know, some of an industry leader effectively. Um, what, what would you say, you know, what drove that? In terms of, um, you know, why do you think they were specifically interested in what you built?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they loved our community. They loved the ambassador program and community first. Number two, our repeat and our retention rates really showed the true health and stickiness of the brand and the ability to see that our um, adjacent categories like swimwear and loungewear had sixty you know, plus percent repeats. It showed the brand had room to grow. Um, And I think most importantly was we had the same culture, but very different business strategies and customers because that's what they were looking for. They were really looking to balance out their portfolio. Um, And so I, you know, do I think that we were like the most innovative, amazing, smartest people on earth to be able to get acquired in three years? No, I think that there's timing and there's a whole suite of other factors involved. Right. And so we happened to be at a juncture in our business that was very successful and very good. And, you know, thankfully is today, but that timed up with when Wacol happened to be looking to acquire something. So, um, you know, I think the greatest thing that we did was in our board meetings, we'd always say, we're not here for the sale. We're here to build the brand. And that was really what we focused on.
1: What would you say have been some of the biggest changes for you as um, CEO and for the business post acquisition? And kind of how has your role or your responsibilities evolved?
0: Yeah. I mean, we were like a toddler when we got bought, right? We had no rules. We were just, you know, doing whatever we could do to survive and trying things and breaking things and so forth. And so, you know, being acquired is a very emotional moment for a founder. I mean, it was for me. I could, barely get out of bed the day that we closed, it was terrifying. (laughs) And, you know, you're, you're all of a sudden going from a three-year-old company to this brand going to college, right? So as a founder, what you realize now is the brand doesn't need you as much as you may need the brand, (laughs) right? And so, um, I think the things that changed is, we have a lot more structure we moved into their warehouse we don't have to worry about fundraising um and so the foundation is really strong and i don't have to worry about looking at cash flow and making sure i can pay my employees you know a year from now or 18 months from now because that is like the greatest burden or i think the most important thing as a founder to always think about um but what's changed for me personally is now it's a lot more complicated right we have to follow gap principles we're very multi-channel because we have a great brand that um, acquired us, we could we could have launched. We launched Target. We couldn't do that before. And so, with all of the opportunities, also com- come complexities. And so, for me, I have to navigate between the
1: complexity
0: complexities and really still being a free thinker and living in beta.
1: Do you have any advice for other founders who you know are thinking about an acquisition process? If you were, for example, you know, to build a new company, anything? that you would make sure to do early on.
0: Yeah, number 1 track every single dollar. Like QuickBooks into it, whatever it is, make your life easy because when you get to diligence, holy crap. <laughs> you want to be really organized. So be organized if that's on your forefront. Um number 2 is Really think about the long game for your brand, right? Because people care not just about growth and top line sales. They really want to know about customer acquisition costs and repeat. And so health of the brand, true health. Um, And then lastly, I would say start to build your bench. You know, don't be too top heavy. Don't be too bottom heavy in terms of like your organizational structure. Um, Because I think that's where we are really trying to catch up is balancing both the top and the bottom and making sure we're covered. When you're acquired, you got to move fast post-acquisition and maintain those numbers while also integrating. So you need help.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, how have you seen the space evolve um, since you started Lively?
0: Um, intimate specifically or just startups?
1: <laughs> Intimates.
0: Yeah. I mean, when I started Lively, there was um, a couple, I-, I would say, you know, three to four awesome startups out there hanging and like building really, really strong. Now I'm really proud to say there's a good, I would say a dozen, if not more. And so I think that the space has really transitioned from being, um, you know, just a couple of key players, whether it be Victoria's Secret, Mass Market, um et cetera, to now a lot of different perspectives and opportunities for a customer to decide you know where they feel most comfortable um in a given day time or moment and have choices i think it's a lot more uh female-led and female-centric mm-hmm. than it ever was
1: and in terms of um your kind of view as a leader. Um, what would be the best way to describe your leadership style? I'm curious, you know, how has that changed or evolved, um, and and also how how does it relate to your company culture?
0: Yeah, I'm a, an extroverted introvert, so I come across mm-hmm. very like casual, outgoing, et cetera. Yet, uh, I'm actually not. I'm much more comfortable introverted and and you know, not being in the the spotlight or on stage. But with that said, I think that goes the same with leadership. So very open and friendly and casual when it's a big group, but very much uh, what I've learned is that a startup is a sports team. It's not a family. So where I started with the mentality of like, we're this like awesome family. And like, you know, no matter what, um, we're always going to stick together. That is true, but in a more of like a sports team manner in that we have to move the players around the team uh, around the field because the business is changing so fast that the people on the team also need to change with the business and that was a really hard lesson for me to learn um, quite frankly it's a really hard thing to do is constantly evolve and grow and adjust the team as the business and the environment um does too so i'd say my leadership style is very direct uh, transparent, but also nurturing at the same time.
1: Um, and when you think about the journey of kind of building a business and, and ultimately, you know, being a founder, what have been some of the most rewarding or, or even unexpected parts of, of that journey?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think seeing the individuals on your team grow and step up is phenomenal. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, one of the amazing humans on my team, her name's Ari and she came in as an intern. I mean, I started lively in August. She joined me in September and she's like, I just, I just want to be a part of this. And I paid her, you know, hourly for a couple hours a week. And then she transitioned a year later into full time. And now six years later, you know, she's a senior designer on our team or Sarah Sullivan, who, you know, again, freelance for me in a a design creative role is now our, uh, creative director or, you know, Anita, like seeing these people grow on your team and, you know, they're going to be the leaders of tomorrow within this industry is probably the coolest thing.
1: Yeah, I I, I would echo that. Um, I think it's all about the people at the end of the day. <laughs> totally. Um, so, you know, the 2%, as a podcast is, is focused on highlighting stories of people who are you know, ultimately working to improve the stats around investing in, in diverse founders and diversity. From your vantage point, what do you think it will take um, to get parity in, in this industry and in this ecosystem? Um, and you know, ultimately, how do you think we see more success stories like yours?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we have to come at it from all sides. So, you know, you knew what you do with the female founder fund is coming from one angle where you're breaking through, you know, all the different things that we did not have as opportunities, you know, I think, you know, funding at all stages. Right. And I think getting women to see that they can be a part of venture or different types of funding, um, Uh, organizations at all levels is really critical so having women in those seats that are part of deciding where the money goes and then for us as founders educating and supporting at the same time so i'm you know really fortunate that i could switch over into an angel investing role and start to support and pay forward um both on an advising perspective and a financial perspective female founders of tomorrow and then i think the third perspective is just the generations to come right i look at my daughter who's eight and other women that are um, you know coming out of high school and, and into college and i think just Education is where it starts. So, you know, understanding where the opportunities lie in the future, whether that's in Web3 or STEM or SAS, et cetera, but like giving them the knowledge and the network to understand where they're most excited and hopefully sitting in those seats.
1: So we're we're now gonna move into our lightning round, um, which is my favorite part. Um, so I'm gonna ask you a few questions and would love for you to just answer with whatever comes to mind first. Um, so let's start with, as an entrepreneur, what is one additional space that you are excited about right now or would consider building a business in? Web3, NFT space. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever received?
0: Comparison is the killer of joy.
1: Ooh, that's a good one. I like it. Um, what char- characteristics do you believe are most important for founders to be successful? I think
0: optimism and just, you know, ignorant belief. Just You just <laughs> have to believe.
1: <laughs> um, amazing. Um, so anything you would like to plug or announce?
0: Um, You know, I would say one thing that we're really excited about is, you know, we have our podcast, No Makeup Needed, obviously, where we're telling female founder stories. But we're also starting a new program called Pay It Forward, uh, where we've asked uh, female leaders and founders across the industry to donate an hour of their time to give one-on-one mentorship towards the ambassadors within the Lively community and and anyone's welcome to join. Um, On the business front, you know, Lively is... Thriving, growing, Um, hopefully more stores, expanding in Target, and wearlively.com is there for you.
1: Love it. Um, And last but not least, where can our listeners find you online?
0: Sure. wearlively.com, at wearlively on social, and I'm the underscore Michelle Grant.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Uh, It's such a pleasure having you and excited to have this go live.
0: Amazing. Thanks, Anu.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the 2% for today's episode featuring Michelle Cordero-Grant, founder and CEO of Lively. Just last week, Michelle launched Web3 with MCG, a podcast for women looking to dip their toe into the new wild world of the internet. So if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll check that out too. Stay in touch with us on Instagram at Female Founders Fund and on Twitter at FQVC. And for those of you building the next billion dollar businesses, we'd love to hear from you. Send all pitch decks to pitches at femalefoundersfund.com and we'll be in touch. And finally, if you're interested in working at one of our 45 plus female founded startups, explore our job opportunities at jobs.femalefoundersfund.com. Make sure to subscribe to the 2% on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listing. And stay tuned for our next episode with powerful women founding and funding the future. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show that would help us out too. Until next time, I'm Anu Dougal, and this has been The 2%.